Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. As you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park, which I'm really having fun sharing with you. But before I begin, I wanted to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming an Algonquin Defining Moments patron. As I'm sure you can imagine, Researching and compiling these stories is no easy matter, and very time-consuming, especially since so many great Algonquin Park human history books are now out of print. To do so, just go to my AlgonquinParkHeritage.com website and click on the Be a Patron button. With four levels of support to choose from, there should be something for everyone. But if instead you'd rather just buy a t-shirt or a coffee mug or other merch, click the Gifts and Gears button. You can also go to my show page, www.podbean.com, and click there on the Become a Patron button on the top right corner. Either way, thanks in advance for your continued support. At the end of the last episode, I shared with you some of the highlights of the origins in 1968 of the Algonquin Wildlands League, that's now called the Wildlands League. Douglas Pimlot, Algonquin's first wolf researcher, who had been very concerned that in spite of all of his myth-busting insights into Algonquin wolves, there seemed to be significant lack of interest on the part of the ministry officials in proactively protecting the wilderness and its important inhabitants and ecosystems. This drove him to resign from the ministry and take a position at the University of Toronto Department of Zoology, from which he could more easily lobby for change. What you probably don't know is that one of the key founding members of the Algonquin Wildlands League was a man named Dan Gibson. Dan was a Taylor Staten Camp's Camp Amic alumni, a longtime resident of Canoe Lake, award-winning wildlife filmmaker, sound recording artist, inventor of the Dan Gibson Sound Parabola recording device, and in 1994 recipient of the Order of Canada. His groundbreaking role in helping all of us see, hear, and better appreciate wildlife began in the 1960s with short educational films and TV shows. In all, over 150 films were produced. In 1965, his film White Throat won the Golden Gate Award at the San Francisco Film Festival, and two years later, Land of the Loon became the best TV film of the year in Canada. And in 1975, his first feature-length movie, Wings in the Wilderness, won the Canadian Film Award for Best Sound in a Non-Theatrical Film and a Certificate of Honour for Outstanding Contribution to the Art of Cinematography. Now, many of you may have not known any of this and know of him only from his music label, Dan Gibson Solitudes, that he launched in 1981. Over 20 million Solitude albums were sold, over the course of some 30-plus years, although I guess I should call them CDs. 15 achieved certified gold, and 11 achieved certified platinum status. In 1997, Dan was awarded the Walt Grealis Special Achievement Juno Award and was added to the Canadian Music Hall of Fame. But what you likely don't know is that Dan and my father were Canoe Lake friends and professional colleagues. My father owned a film processing and post-production lab in downtown Toronto, and for many years all of Dan's films were produced and copied there. As you'll recall from my books and Algonquin Defining Moment podcast episodes, Dan convinced my dad to take out a lease on Canoe Lake in 1951. So all this meant that during Dan's formative years as a filmmaker, much of his recording of both wildlife and sound was done in and around Canoe Lake. All of us kids from about a dozen other Taylor Staten Camp alumni families hung out together all summer long, absorbing Dan's influence in a myriad of ways. Dan passed away in 2006, but memories of him and his stories live on with all of us. I'm really excited today to have with me Holly Gibson Stewart, my childhood friend and Canoe Lake neighbor. In this episode, we'll share stories about her father and his career and his contribution to changing how Canadians view the wildlife around them. In the next one, my brother Bob will join us to share his experiences as a production assistant for Wings in the Wilderness, Dan's feature film, 
about geese that was filmed on Canoe Lake in 1974. Welcome, Holly, and thank you so much for joining me today. It's so good to connect with you again. Oh, you're welcome, and it's great to see you. You and I have known each other for years, since we could remember anything. <laughs> Before we could talk. Yes. Uh, well, I thought maybe the best place to start would be for you to share your story about how your family got to Algonquin Park. Well, that's certainly one that I, uh, I'm very familiar with. Probably the best place to start is, is when my parents uh, first met each other at the Taylor Staten camps. It was actually in September camp, the session after the regular summer sessions where families could come back and have a camp experience and use all the facilities. My dad was working there as something, I'm not even sure. Well, he did, he did go as a camper one year, and then he was there on staff after that. Uh-huh. So he was a camper with Pierre Trudeau, actually. They were in the same section. Oh, okay. But my mother was a CIT. I believe it was Joy McCaskill talked her into coming to Wapameo on staff. She was a counselor in training her first year, and then her second year, she was a counselor. My mother noticed my father before my father noticed my mother. In fact, she was quite smitten. He was a quite the handsome dude. So she was trying to devise a way that uh, he would notice her. And one day when she was serving, she walked behind him and purposely dumped soup down his back. <laughs> and... He certainly noticed. I don't think the soup was too hot. She didn't burn him. As the saying goes, the rest is history. He grew up in Montreal. And of course, my father grew up in Grimsby and in Toronto. They had a long distance relationship. They both went back to camp the next summer, but they had a long distance relationship for a couple of years. And then, and then they married in, in June of 1948 after my mother graduated from McGill. They did spend their honeymoon on uh, Lake Lavier, where they were flown in. Oh. They were to be there for five days. It was a fishing trip. They were just going to do little day trips here and there around Lavier. And on the first day, they uh, headed out in their canoe and did not string the pack up, the food pack up, and came back to find that a bear had ransacked their whole campsite and all their food was gone. So they lived on fish for four more days because the plane wasn't coming back to get them until I. Yeah. And then to add insult to injury, when they got back to the cottage, dad's friends had taken all the furniture out of the main cabin and shoved it into their tiny sleeping bunkie. <laughs> and then further further insult to injury one of my dad's bachelor buddies decided that they would really uh, they would really enjoy his company at the cottage for the remainder of their honeymoon so they had a guest (laughs) yes I remember your dad always used to love to tell that story and your mom would always respond canoe trips were that you endured them so you could talk about them afterwards but that was about all they were useful for (laughs) yeah she didn't much like sleeping in a tent (laughs) (laughs) she she loved paddling a canoe she was a really good paddler really good canoeist (laughs) but she had a great instructor there but i've got a few other noteworthy ones that i need to add to the collection one is that your dad told me he used to call your cottage the ant hill. I'm not sure why, but I suspect it's because the hill it was built on, overlooking the lake, was partly a sandy bluff, where ants would congregate in late summer and build these large ant hills. We had a spot on our lease where the same thing would happen, and the ants would constantly rebuild, no matter how many times we took it down as kids. Now, your main cabin was built with these beautiful pine logs that your father told me was constructed by locals Wham and Jimmy Stringer and Hank Granke from Potter Creek. 
and the impressive stone fireplace was built by Whitney local Felix Lukasavich. Now Felix's somewhat cryptic response to your dad's request that he build something rough to suit the decor of the cabin was that that was the only kind of fireplace that he knew how to build. Which, of course, wasn't exactly true, as other Lukasavich family members built the main dining room and the glorious central fireplace at Erewhon Pines Resort in the 1930s, and the family was well known in the cabin building trade. However, my greatest recollection of the anthill was the fact that you could always find chipmunks there. We would sit on the ground on the path to the sleeping bunkies with peanuts or dried corn, and they would come and eat out of our hands and sit on our shoulders. And then, of course, there were the bird feeders. Now, this was during the days when bird feeders were allowed, and they were hung from the trees near the screened-in porch off of the kitchen. And so we could watch all kinds of birds, especially blue jays and Canada jays, eat the corn and sunflower seeds that were put out for them all summer long. Now, with no biological facts at my disposal, I've decided that during those years, each generation of bird and chipmunk must have passed on in their DNA instructions as to how to get to the Gibson wildlife feeders, so that no matter where or under what circumstances they were born, they always knew where on Canoe Lake to go to spend their summers. Now, my recollection now, and I can't recall now whether your dad told me or whether I had read this somewhere else, was that while he's at camp, he had met or uh, had been influenced by Stuart Thompson, who was, of course, related to Ernest Seton Thompson, and had gotten very interested in photography in addition to, you know, nature kinds of stuff that, that uh, you know, Thompson was advocating at that time. Is that true? Yes. Um, in fact, his interest in photography started a little bit earlier. He, he was given as a gift a little brownie camera and he was living in, in, uh, on his family farm in Grimsby, Ontario. And in the wintertime, he would go around to all the neighbors and take pictures of their houses, develop the film, and then sell the pictures to his neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> he was entrepreneurial from right from the get-go. But then, yes, he, he definitely, he was enthralled with Stuart Thompson's program. Stuart taught, I believe, both nature and campcraft. And dad was really taken with all of it. I guess he had, maybe he had a camera there. Each of my siblings, my three other siblings, Kirky in 1951, me in 53, Dan in 57, and Gordon surprise, surprise, in 64, we all have different interpretations of, of dad's life based on our own experiences. But, um, you know, I, I, he, he didn't talk a lot about that. It was more, he always, he always wanted to tell funny stories. Yes, that's my memory of him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But but he certainly he he was certainly very influenced by Stuart Thompson. Hmm. Now my understanding is that your dad and my dad actually met at Ashley and Crippen, which was a photography studio, wasn't it? That's that's right. Ashley and Crippen were partners, partners in business and otherwise. Mr. Ashley died first Mr. Crippen kept the business going and dad worked as a portrait photographer as mm -hmm. did your dad I believe and you know they did their own developing as well and then Mr. Crippen died and he left the house on Bloor Street and the business to my father oh wow yeah that was a real leg up for my dad yeah because the uh, portraits and the school photos and team photos and whatnot, that was the bread and butter. And his interest in, in wildlife filmmaking was really developing at that time as well. Mm -hmm. He brought in um, another fellow, well, a couple of other fellows to, to take over the 
the portrait photography end of it. And he, he went up to the third floor and, and that was his studio. And that's where he started um, making his, his little, little films. Mm-hmm. And they started off small. Right. Very small, you know, like 10 minute films. He, he also, he was also employed to do the, do you remember the Timex torture test mm-hmm. commercial? Yeah, mm-hmm. he did. He did the one where it was, uh, they attached it to a ski. It was attached to dad's ski and he filmed the Timex watch being tortured all the way down the hill. (laughs) (laughs) He he also did a couple of films for Tourist Ontario. One was called Golden Autumn. It was, you know, to get people to come out and look at the color. Hmm. Now, my understanding was that in the early 60s, there really were no catalogs or libraries of wildlife sounds. Now, there were a few experts, Dr. Gunn, who I mentioned, who had come and and recorded the Pimelot wolf puppies at the Wildlife Research Station was one. But is that something that motivated your father to get interested in, in, in having sounds that would go with the films he was shooting? Well, definitely yes, but but that's what that's what all filmmakers ended up having to do because there was no library. So dad, you know, dad realized that he he had to capture these sounds, and he went out in blinds and in the middle of the night <laughs> when there was no traffic, or you know, no boat traffic or no highway traffic, or you know, he'd walk down a lumber road to get the wolves. And his sounds, of course, we all know are used all over the world now. And he eventually built up such a huge library that he was selling stock to Disney and National Geographic. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> one, of the, one of the fun stories about dad recording was, and I'm sure we're going to talk about the parabola at some point but he in his older years he he's he always wanted to get a bit trying to get something better better and better as the equipment got better he just kept re-recording different sounds and of course his loons are favorite are famous as well so he set up his parabolic reflector microphone on the roof of his sleeping cabin and he had his new tape recorder beside his bed and he jury rigged the whole thing up wired and everything so that if he woke up in the night and he heard a loon he would just flip a switch and it would start recording from the roof wow yeah he was very inventive you know he was always he was always thinking about how to do things better and then eventually you know he had this this all these master tapes of sound and then digital came along and he re-recorded everything in digital wow so yeah it was it was always a project Hmm. so what (laughs) was this what was this parabolic recording device you you mentioned okay so Officially, it was called the Dan Gibson Parabolic Reflector Microphone. And the first, the first parabola that I remember was like this green, solid green dish, and it was quite heavy. And he used, he started off with that, he used that, but he found that it was quite cumbersome. So he set out to develop a lightweight and clear plastic parabola shaped device. But then he found that by inverting the microphone to the inside, rather than facing out towards the bird or the animal or whatever he was recording, he would get a much purer sound. That was used in you know, for all different kinds of things. You used to see people running up and down at NFL games with 
with the Dan Gibson parabola. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it really did revolutionize the way people were recording sound, right? Not just in the nature world where it did have a major impact on professional filmmakers and recording, but also in other, all kinds of other fields as well. Yes, yes, absolutely. It was a very, very successful, useful device. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he, he did, he did sell the business. He was in business with Robert Ryan, who is a cinematographer, mm-hmm. and they called they called the business RD Systems, and they manufactured and marketed and sold the Dan Gibson parabolic reflector microphone. Hmm. They eventually sold that business to John Brook from Smoke Lake. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. I, I noticed I was just doing a random search on eBay for something else. And I saw someone was selling one of the originals, which was kind of yeah. fun to, you know, to see. I think it's time for a musical interlude. This track is called Stream of Dreams and is from Dan Gibson's Solitude's Harmony album. Thank you. 
Your brother sent me, which was so kind, a copy of Wings of the Wilderness. I was listening to it a few weeks ago, and you know, there was sort of the part of the scene was pictures of your dad paddling off on a, you know, an overnight or a couple of overnight day trip to to record things. And that led me to think to wonder about, I mean, was he gone a lot when you were young or you know, growing up and off on these trips, or was it really just a summer thing that he would he would do? Usually, mom and dad would take one trip a year during the year. He was he. he it wasn't noticeable that he was away a lot, and often when he would go away, it would be like a day trip. Mm. He uh, and and often he would take one of us with him to you know to help or learn or because we had nothing else to do or <laughs> but when they when he recorded around the United States mostly the US he he did go down into the Caribbean they went to Trinidad and they did one solitudes album down there but usually my mother would go with him on that on that trip so they would go like one couple weeks a year and we'd have a babysitter mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but it wasn't it wasn't noticeable mm -hmm. he was around the we were so lucky he was around the cottage all most of the summer and it was a very interesting place for us to be yeah well that's my memory is seeing him I mean he and Danny your brother would get up at you know, before dawn when the mists were rising on the lake and they, and you could see them running off in the boat and and, uh, you know, I would find them on the down the, the Bonita Creek sometimes and they would be recording the sounds of the water or a particular bird that was nearby or and then yep. then I'd see him up Potter Creek. At the, in those days, there were some beavers that lived up there and he'd be up there trying to 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 both photograph and then also record the beavers and, of course, the loons and the various loon rafts that we'd set up uh, originally in those days his his uh his recordings of wolves i think are the best i've ever heard yeah and yeah. he and you know he worked with uh doug pimlot i did not know that oh that's interesting yeah oh, yeah he uh he and doug filmed the uh the wolf pups that doug was raising on potter creek Mm -hmm. We as kids, we used to go down and observe them. We weren't allowed to, of course, touch them or or encourage them to be with humans as much as possible. But uh, they were they were pretty 
as pups, they were like pups, you know, they were pretty wild. That must have been really fun, although at the time you probably didn't know, I mean, you know, they're well, wolves, but it wasn't associated with fear or anything, right? Oh, well, but we weren't raised to be afraid of wolves. Yeah. Dad, I would go out with dad. Oh, a couple of times I went out with him to record wolves and the, you know, at night down the old uh, railway, the Rose Lake pack that were down, down that road. Oh, that's, that's where he got that really famous, the, the old alpha just howling with the most melodious voice. It, it was just magic. Wow. Just. Wow. Love that. Love that. And then wasn't there one called the land of the loon? Well, that was a very, that was one of the early short films. Yes. And that all got a bunch of awards, didn't it? The best, I have it that it was the best TV of the year and a certificate of honor for outstanding contribution to the art of cinematography by the Canadian <laughs> Film Awards in 1967. His first award was White Throat, though. Oh, that, okay. That Tell me about the, that. Well, that was a first short film. I, I, I can't remember. It might've been maybe 20 minutes. And um, it got the Golden Gate Award at the 1965 San Francisco Film Festival. Oh, wow. Land of the Loon was next. And I, I, I think that it was, it was a time when people were really starting to, to wake up and appreciate their environment more than they had on a greater scale. And that's, it ended up being that Solitudes ended up being such a, a success because of this, this new greater awareness from more people. Yeah, yeah. Although Solitudes was much later. We'll talk about that in, in a little bit later. Yeah. So fast forward, you know, he's doing these small films and then gets interested in TV series, right? And was and hooked up with the Audubon Wildlife Theater and started doing yep. a bunch of, of, of television shows and, and various documentaries. Those went on to be quite um, successful, right? Yes, they, they critically very successful. And it was a natural progression really from his little short vignettes that he was doing to, to get into deeper waters. Audubon Wildlife Series had 78 episodes and it ran from 1968 to 1974. Everything was so positive that they got into more, they had bigger budgets and they got, um, they got better, you know, a better narrator <laughs> in, in the form of Lauren Green, who was my father's hero from bonanza days but lauren did a he did a great job he had a he had a spectacular voice and that was that was done under keg productions keg productions mm -hmm. dad's partners were jerry keady ralph ellis and himself following that was i think the wildlife cinema to the wild country came after wildlife cinema ah okay now, for those who may not be aware, To the Wild Country featured John and Janet Foster, who were uh, still photographers at the time. They had met Dan in the 1960s and honed their skills as canoeist photographers and later filmmakers with him. As they said, canoeing deep into the park allowed them to film wildlife in their natural habitat. And To the Wild Country was narrated by Lorne Green and produced by Dan's, of course, Keg Productions, and it ran from November 72 to February 1975. After To the Wild Country came Wild Canada, which was a separate company called Manitou Productions, owned by Ralph Ellis and Dan Gibson. And they sent the, the Fosters, Janet, Janet and John Foster, who uh, had starred in To the Wild Country as well, sent them off to even more exotic locations for example they you know my favorite was the was the show on the nahani river 
And that is, that is what uh, made me swear I would someday go to the Nahani. I was, it was such a beautiful film. Wow. Such magnificent scenery. Mm. Now in 1974, Dan started a collaboration with cinematographer Robert Ryan and produced a feature-length movie called Wings in the Wilderness. And it went on in 1975 to win the Canadian Film Award for the Best Sound in a Non-Theatrical Film and a Certificate of Honour for Outstanding Contribution to the Art of Cinematography. My younger brother Bob was a production assistant on that film, so I've asked him to join us in the next episode to share what it was like working with geese as the actors, not people, and also his experiences watching and helping with the filming of the geese. Fast forward, you know, he's had tremendous film acclaim, and I guess he was in his late 50s. Most people in those days might be thinking, well, I've kind of, you know, made my contribution, time to hang up my skates and think of something else to do. And lo and behold, Solitudes comes along. Can you tell us a little bit about how all that happened? Yeah, well, he had tried to put out an album or two earlier on, and one was called Land of the Loon. Um, It just didn't take then he ended up with this huge library of sounds and there be there there really was a, a public more a, a more public awareness of of wildlife and and interest in wildlife films and interest in bird watching and and seeing animals in their natural habitat so he launched solitudes a, um, a new a new one and they sold fairly well, but it really was, and that was around eight, 1981. And then Gord, my brother Gordon joined the company and, and we all worked for the company at some point or another. I, I the least, my sister threw out, but Gordon joined the company and he, Gordon's a real visionary, a real creative person like my father. And he suggested that that they they blend music with nature sounds and that that might be that might be something that would appeal on a greater level to people so the first album was called harmony and it's i think it's still my favorite it's just beautiful and from there it just it grew they made one album after another and and dad used a lot of his his um, stock sounds, but he also sent people out um, ar- around the country, around America, around all over Canada to record more sounds and add to the library. And they just, they started going crazy. We, uh, we had interactive boards where people could could go and push a, a selection on a, a button and it would play a selection off that album. And that was provided to the stores and the airports and you know ev- everybody for free. It was it was one of the most brilliant marketing marketing ploys I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And um, and it just took off and it, and they ended up all around the world. In fact, there have been 20 million Solitudes albums sold around the world. Wow. 20 million. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know um, if you knew this, but dad did eventually retire and Gordon licensed the Solitudes name. And he and his partner, Andy Burgess, started their own company. They went on and grew the company from five employees to 175. Wow. Um, And then eventually sold it. Now, listeners, if you haven't figured it out by now, I can't emphasize enough the fact that Dan was this larger-than-life figure with this loud, booming voice who just loved having company and telling stories. You know, it feels so funny to just be always saying such 
amazing, wonderful things about him. But he really was, he really was quite an awesome guy. He really was. Now, one of my favorite memories as a young adult in the 1980s was when he would put on his Commodore hat, get out his megaphone, and host the annual laser races at the end of each summer. Now, wasn't it he that introduced us all to lasers in the 1970s? Well, kind of. It was me that introduced the laser to him. Oh, I did not know that. Okay, tell me more. And you and I were... We were CITs together at Wapameo in 1972. I was a sailing rep. And so I was on sailing every single morning teaching the little kids. And one day, a friend of the head of sailing came up for a visit and she brought a laser with her. We went out, we took, each took a turn and we're so excited about it because it was a hot little boat and it was so easy to maneuver and 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 just playful and fun so i went into the business office and i phoned dad and i said you've got to get over here you you're not going to believe this so he came over and he tried it out he was really excited about it that we've got some of the lowest numbers on the sales yeah of of, uh, of all lasers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, but he, yeah, he was a great Commodore. He was out there teaching the kids, uh, running races every, every afternoon when the weather was, was fine. So enthusiastic. He also made a lot of the trophies and, and hosted the annual regatta at the end of August every year. Yeah. Now, those of you who have read my book, Treasuring Algonquin, Sharing Scenes of a Hundred Years of Leaseholding, you already know this story, but Dan was also one of the founding Commodores of the South Shore Yacht and Country Club. Now, this club was established in the spring of 1953 and had a logo, it had plans for t-shirts and uniforms. The club's objective was to be a non-profit organization devoted to cultural activities on Canoe Lake. Now, over the years, these cultural activities included an annual-themed cocktail party, a corn roast, a sweepstake event to guess when the ice was expected to go out each spring, and an annual sailing regatta that continues on to this day in late August, which is hosted by Dan's son, Dan Jr. Now, one of the other funny things I discovered when I was researching my history of Canoe Lake, I discovered the early minutes of this club and a rather lengthy discussion as to the voting status of wives and girlfriends. They were referred to in these minutes as baby dolls. Seriously sexist, but also hilarious at the same time. A baby doll was defined eventually as a non-wife female over 16 who could carry two pails of water or would do what she was told over a visiting weekend. It was then agreed that all wives would have an equal vote, and baby dolls would have half a vote, as would daughters and later sons over 20 years of age, and that a husband could control his wife's vote in her absence. On my website, algonquinparkheritage.com, there are some fun photographs of some of the early sailing trophies. You guys are one of the few folks on Canoe Lake that had a piano that I always thought was interesting. I'm assuming your dad was interested in music, right? He loved music. He, he got, I don't, there was something that he traded. What was it? A gun or something for this piano. What, do you know the story? Um, my recollection was that your dad had this old antique saddle rifle that he yeah. must have gotten from someplace. And yes. he bartered the the guys that were taking down the Algonquin Hotel back in the, that would have been the late 50s. Uh, he saw that they were, you know, about to basically take the piano out and throw it on the junk heap and said, wait a minute, you know, I'll, I'll, tr I'll trade you the saddle rifle for the piano. That rings a bell. And then got them, how on earth they ever got it down the lake, I'll have no idea, but. Oh, I don't know either. But that piano had the most beautiful ivory keys, real ivory keys. He had, he had somebody come in and tune it every once in a while. 
And then, you know, he'd, he'd just get on there and he'd twiddle about. He only played by ear. He did not read music. And then, of course, the stringers would come over, Wham, and mostly Wham was, he was a more musical one. I think Jimmy played the spoons or something. <laughs> but, yeah, Wham, Wham would get and just hammer, you know, honky-tonk music on the on the uh on the piano or or bring his fiddle and now helpfully as a little sidebar many of you will recall from previous episodes in my books that this piano and wham was famous because it was the heart and soul of the stringer memorial square dance orchestra core members were wham whom holly just mentioned dan gibson who played the accordion and sometimes the piano another friend, Angelo, who played the guitar and was a great square dance caller, and Adele Gibson or Barbara Redfern, who would occasionally fill in as guest pianists. The group would play at square dances arranged at the Algonquin Hotel and sometimes at Taylor Staten Camps, Camp Tamaqua, Camp Erewhon, and of course, Erewhon Pines Resort. If needed, they would drag that piano, borrowed from the Algonquin Hotel, to each dance location. There was always music going on after dinner. And even in the city, we'd, you know, after dinner, dad, with one of his instruments, he got interested in the, he got interested in the sousaphone for a while. And he'd sit in the chair and he'd just, you know, go boom, 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 boom. But his favorite, I think, was the bass fiddle. And he'd get, he'd get the transistor radio out, he'd turn it on, sit on the mantelpiece and he loved all the old big bands and he played big band music and just pluck away, you know, on his bass fiddle. <laughs> I think, I think people thought we were a little crazy. <laughs> well, your mom must've been exhausted just trying to keep up with it all. Yeah. You know, she, my mother is a real introvert and my father is a real extrovert and as the saying goes, opposites attract. And it's so true in their case. My father, everybody was welcome. You walk in the room and he'd make you feel like you were the only person there. And it was, come on in, have a drink. You know, we want to stay for dinner, whatever, whatever. Uh, let's play some music. And, you know, my poor mother out there in the kitchen. <laughs> Yeah, he made everybody feel important. And people would go, even people that were in competition with him in the industry would come to him for advice and he would give it to them for nothing, you know, just because he's a, he was a good guy. Yeah. 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 So one last story you mentioned last time we chatted and it was such a wonderful story. I want you to share it again, which was when you went out moose looking for moose one fall <laughs> yeah oh gosh oh oh such wonderful memories yeah uh so it i think it was like the end of september we i often dad and i often went up to the cottage dan often came too but my mother after the summer she wasn't that interested in going to the cottage so so I would go up. Dad had to have somebody cook his meals because <laughs> he couldn't cook. And so one night we were up there and he said, you know, I'm, I'm, I want to go out and I want to get I want to get some recordings of uh, the bull moose if I can. And maybe, you know, it might be too dark, but maybe some, you know, maybe a few shots. So he called up um, George Garland. And we met down at the Port Ashdor and we drove down, you know, all these lumber roads. And, and dad said, this, I know this is a good spot. So we got out of the car and he does the cow moose in heat sound, which is like this. And after a few minutes, a big bull moose appears down the road and he's just standing there you know kind of munching away and you know that's the time of year they're very randy and they can be very dangerous 
but he, you know, he was, he was there, he, he was listening. And then dad kept doing the, the call, trying to bring him in a little bit closer because the, the bull moose makes a very unique sound when they're looking for a mate. And so another moose appears in the bush. Like we can hear it crashing through and we can see the big antlers appear on, in one direction. And then a third one came on the other side. So we've got three bull moose and they are in fighting mode. And dad just yells at me, get in the car. <laughs> Cause they're coming down the road. <laughs> oh my gosh. George and dad and I just jumped in and drove off. We did not get the sounds. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> I can just see <laughs> going, what on earth was that? <laughs> thank, goodness, thank goodness moose are, are short-sighted. <laughs> <laughs> yes, for sure. Well, thank you so much, Holly, for your willingness to spend this time with me and share some of our stories of, of your father, who we all adored. And uh, I really, really appreciate it. Thanks, Gay. And I'm so, I'm so absolutely delighted with your podcast. They're wonderful. And I have, I've sent the link on to so many people and everybody's enjoying them so much. Thank you for doing it. Thank you. And we'll see you next time when Holly and my brother will come and talk about wings in the wilderness and raising geese on Canoe Lake. But before I go, here's a word from the Wildlife Research Station. Located in the heart of Algonquin Provincial Park, the not-for-profit Algonquin Wildlife Research Station has been pioneering biological research, wildlife conservation, and student training in the natural sciences for over 75 years. Today, the facility hosts some of the longest-term ecological studies in the world, which continue to provide invaluable baseline information for the protection of lands, waters, and their inhabitants. The Algonquin Wildlife Research Station is supported by user fees and donations. Visit algonquinwrs.ca to learn more and offer your support for their ongoing work in environmental research, teaching, and education.